Thank you for coming back for another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want to check out that company, visit TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. My co-host today is Brad Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And if you want to check out the company that him and his wife run, check out MuskieMayhemTackle.com. Speaking of his wife, must be pretty close to fishing season, Brad. She's uh, may or may not be with us on this podcast, but as of right now, she is not. What is the story? That's becoming pretty typical, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, uh, I don't know what else to say. She's kind of weakening, I guess, is the, the best way to put it. I mean, it seems that way, you know. Like I said, typically, well, last year since we started the podcast in May, she was pretty strong for about, I would say, a month, maybe a month and a half. And then um, she kind of faded, really faded, pretty hard, actually. Disappeared on us, didn't participate. And then we gave her enough grief. She came back. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. I think she's going to join us a little bit here, but, you know, just to launch this thing off, we're, we're on our own. Yeah, she came back, got herself a fan club. People love her. And now she's going to, you know, hide out all summer long, build some baits and catch some bluegills, and that's it. We won't even hear from her again. <laughs> that's about it, too. Well, in all in all reality, no carry aside, we can we'll we'll be able to pull through. I know that we can do it, Brad. I know it's going to be tough, but we can do it. A uh, couple things. Just want to thank everybody for listening. I know I said it in the beginning, but I really want you know we truly do want to thank everybody. The last couple weeks, we've had really good download numbers. You know, on on for the Wednesday releases. I'm hoping it's because people like the podcast and they've enjoyed what we've brought to the podcast again. You know, or if anybody wants to find a different guest or, you know, has a suggestion for us, shoot us an email, backlashpodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us a message on Facebook, or you could shoot us a message on Instagram. You know, we're always looking for suggestions. But, you know, like I said, we just can't thank you all enough for spending your Wednesdays or Thursdays or Fridays or whenever you listen. You know, I know things are, um, they've been a little crazy the last couple months, but hopefully we've given you an hour of normalcy every week. And like I said, Brad and I can't thank you enough for that. That's for sure, Jeff. I mean, it, it's been incredible. This whole ride has been incredible, you know, and, and with or without Carrie, we're going to keep driving forward. Listen here, you two. Oh, boy. Busted. I figured it was perfect timing for that. <laughs> hey, look, she decided to show up. That's nice. I love it. This is where I need to cue the round of applause music. Like, woo! (laughs) Hey, at least somebody's here to save the show. I know Brad and I, you know, we were worried that we weren't going to be able to handle it without you. I mean, fortunately, I think we can pull through, but it's just good to know that you still have her back. Right? (laughs) Yeah. She's sitting here uh, just shaking her head, Joe. Well, I mean, she should. I didn't miss it. I was... In the area to hear it. Well, that's good. I mean, I said it loud enough, so I was hoping that you would. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for speakerphone, right? That's right. Well, we're going to have a guest tonight. Steve Herbeck is going to come on. Steve's pretty well known in the musky world. He's caught a couple big fish in his life. I think he's got a couple stories he'll be able to tell us, so that'll be cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say this, Jeff. You know, one of the things about Herbie, you know, I think everybody knows him as Herbie. 
I've told so many people over the years, if you have never fished with Herbie, you need to do it because this guy, he's unique. He's interesting. He's got a ton of stories, tons of history in the fishing world. He ultimately is a guy that everybody, every musky, true musky fisherman should fish with him at least one time. Really, really should. Well, I don't know if I'll get to fish with him. At least I'll get to talk to him. I've gotten to talk to some really reputable names in the musky world over the past year. And for that, I'm thankful also. It's been a pretty cool ride, like you said before. You know, it's been fun. I'm glad people like listening to us. At least they, they seem to be. Otherwise, I would assume they would have tuned out by now. But it's been it's been a fun ride. This will be a fun one, too. Steve's going to bring a different side of things for us, I'd imagine. As far as that's concerned, so today, by the time you hear this podcast, it'll be Wednesday, early May. It's Thursday night, the week before the Wisconsin, Southern Wisconsin Muskie opener. So hopefully we're going to start to see some picks roll in of some fish being caught. I I mean, I'm kind of questioning how this, the start of the season is going to go. Water temperatures are a little bit lower than I think guys would like them to. I've heard reports of, you know, fish paired up and spawning and things like that, so you know, if you've uh, you had some success this past weekend and you got out for Southern Wisconsin or Illinois or Pennsylvania, because I know those guys are all fishing now, you know, post a couple pictures on our uh, Instagram or tag us on Instagram or, you know, post them on our Facebook page for Backlash Podcast. We'd, uh, we'd love to see them because, oh, you know, it's go time now. Minnesota guys will follow real soon. Yeah, we're, we're about a month out here in Minnesota, but, you know, ultimately, Jeff, the big part is, hey, we're back in the boat. We're back throwing at muskies. That's the cool part. Absolutely. So with that being said, though, why don't we go talk to Steve? He's going to really give us the lowdown on uh, some muskies and get the fever going a little bit more for some of these guys. Like I said, it's been a long winter, and I think guys are ready to get out on the boat. Girls, too. Hands down. Let's get it done. All right. Our guest tonight, Steve Herbeck. Steve guides primarily out of Andy Myers Lodge up in Canada, but he's been and done pretty much everything there is to do in the musky world. Steve, thanks for coming out tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to spend some time with you and the folks that get to hear this stuff with us. Yeah, like I said, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I know we've been trying to make this happen for probably, I don't know, four months or so. So I'm glad we were finally able to get this rolling. So, Steve, for people that aren't familiar with you, you want to give us the long background on you? Because the history for you runs deep, and there's a lot to know. So you want to just maybe give us the Cliff Notes version of it? Well, basically, you know, uh, back in the mid-'80s, um, I was living down in Madison, had a real job, and uh, was always trying to find a way to get out of work to go fishing, and it wasn't working out. So I thought, well, I better do something. So I started, actually, as one of the first, guides on the Madison chain, uh, at least muskies. And back then it was all hybrid. So, and it was a rapidly exploding, um, fishery and all the muskie clubs wanted to find out about it. And so I started doing seminars, you know, being asked to do seminars with, um, clubs like the Rockford club and the Chicago clubs and stuff like that, where they had a lot of really good anglers and, and, uh, were really intrigued by this, uh, hybrid fishery. Um, there were a few odd uh, naturals, but it was very, very rare to catch them. They were actually most of the time just mistakes. Um, stocking now, you know, the Lake Wisconsin always had a few in there, and that's also exploded recently too. So 
I mean, there was some good water around there that wasn't really being utilized. Everybody was going right by it and hadn't had in the northern Wisconsin, and they were very anxious um, to find out about this. So that's basically where I started, and I did that for a couple of years while still part-time doing my regular job and built up a clientele, and it just, my love was up in northern Wisconsin and the woods and, and the big lakes and the bigger, the different lakes with the bigger chances of natural, you know, big natural fish and stuff, strange. So I moved to northern Wisconsin, and God bless my wife at that time. Uh, she went along with me. We lived the first year in a camper at Camp Holiday with my with Danny, who was only six, eight months old at that time, and put up with following my dream. And God, I might almost get broken up here. I'm getting so anyway. Um, that's where it started, and you know the, the North Woods uh, just did something to me, and I was hooked. I was done. So was what I was going to do. I don't care what what I had to do to do it. This was what I was going to do, you know. And I caught on kind of quickly. I think in a, in a span of five years, guiding in northern Wisconsin, I I kind of twice had the largest fish caught in the state of Wisconsin. You know, that's hundreds of thousands of fishermen. Some of the best guides that I still respect highly to this day um and those were back in the day okay so um those were actual weighed killed fish on Lyons county scales of of uh you know 43 6 and 55 and a half inches and uh 47 12 and 53 and a half inches although that particular fish when i brought it in at nine o'clock in the morning bottomed the 50 inch scale just barely and uh, that was when a lot of that Lenny Hartman stuff was going around. And I did not want, you know, any type of doubt about it. So we waited for Dick Moore to get done work. And he got up there about 7 or 8 o'clock. And by that time, we were hammered and, and dragging the thing in and out of the snowbank. And that, it ended up just shy of 48 pounds. But it was a legitimate 50-pounder uh, when we brought it in. That was a, That's a registered scale. You know, I just wish I hadn't been such a chicken. I'd had an honest Wisconsin 50-pounder. But, uh, and then uh, and then I also had uh, three fish that were, you know, top uh, in, in the release category during that period of time. You know, it was a pretty exciting time for me. I lived and breathed it, fish day and night. It was an exciting time for me. And then I made the mistake of showing up uh, trying Eagle Lake. Man, I was really hooked in. And uh, so what I started doing was just uh, for a couple of weeks, three weeks, of, you know, during those summers, heading up to Eagle Lake with a good customer of mine who uh, used to uh, um, book me for probably two, three weeks a season. And we'd go up there, uh, fish another lake like Lake Sewell or Lake Lewood or something, but always end up the second week on Eagle. And we always saw our biggest fish and caught our biggest fish on Eagle. And that particular customer at one time i was going through a divorce at the time probably because i was fishing too much <laughs> i'm offered to you know wanted to know if i wanted to get into the resort business and um i said why not you know i was ready for a new adventure and, and we picked up on a resort and uh i obviously had more balls and brains it uh, didn't have a single customer had been closed for three years it's pretty run down so it was definitely a challenge. And after about three or four years, he had to leave because, you know, life isn't always a, a bowl of chocolates, as they say. And, and uh, you're not going to be a millionaire in the first five years of pulling a resort like that. He had a big 
family and my wife and house in Michigan, and he had to go back to the real world. So I bought him out. And at that time, I mean, I didn't even know how to turn on a computer. So it was a challenge. And so besides guiding every day, I was running the place. And within a short time, um, it became a very, very, very popular um, destination because of our format. And that was, as a guide, I did things that most intelligent guides would not do. And that is part of our philosophy was given everything we knew to everybody that came to that lodge, every spot and everything. And I figured if we, if me and my guides could catch fish, showing people what we were doing and, 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 the, and the spots that we knew and stuff, at the same time finding new spots to keep our stuff self-fresh, then we shouldn't have been out there guiding. And that was kind of like our, for, our, uh, you know, our, our format and our philosophy, and the thing took off. You know, it's been a fantastic journey. I mean, the, the numbers of big fish that have come into the into my boat and, and not some of the best guides I feel on in northern Ontario uh, were on the were and still are on the staff. And it was just a, it's just been a fantastic time and it's a fantastic lake and watching it change and develop through those twenty eight years now that I've been there is pretty amazing and it really taught me a lot about how to um, not take lakes for granted just because of what they've always been. But that these lakes are constantly changing and you need to adapt with them, not just lures, not just, you know, presentations, but the lakes themselves. And it taught me a lot along that line. Now, back in, uh, back uh, eight years ago, I, I turned uh, 61, came down with a bout of cancer, and luckily I beat it, but it was time for me to turn the reins over to somebody that had a, a lot of you know, it's a, the thing turned into a monster. It kept growing, and it kept growing, and I let it. And it kind of outgrew my vision of what I wanted as far as being able to stay relaxed and, and guiding and, and, and running a very successful resort. It got so big that the number of employees, the amount of equipment just accelerated into so many anxiety-laden pressures that I just wasn't having fun no more. So I sold the place. And luckily, Julian Kalka, who is a, a great guy, and his, his wife, Nikki, bought it. They're young. They're full of energy and great ideas. And part of my role, uh, they wanted me to stay on. Well, this is, this, this was, it was just a perfect situation for me. I, I stay up there the whole musky season. I, I get to guide all my old guests. I train some of the guides. I do the seminars in the lodge. Uh, kind of a social director, having fun with the guests at night in their cabins and and seeing how the day went and marking stuff from my years of experience and, and giving that touch that sometimes a busy camp owner can't do anymore every day. And it's a very important facet of that life and to be successful. So that's what I get to fit in. And actually what I'm doing is I'm on the, doing making a living still, um, doing what everybody wants to do on vacation. So it's a great deal. It pays me very well. I don't have to touch the money I got for the place. And, and uh, I'm still, now I'm actually living my dream again. So all's good that ends well, and uh, that's the direction I'm headed there. So you, you got to tell me, Herbie, what year was it that you ended up purchasing Andy Myers? 1993. 93. I know the first time I was ever there, I think it was 2000 or 2001. Yeah, purchased it. 92 but didn't really open it till 93 okay so it was seven eight years later that i ended up showing up there 
I'll never yeah. forget it. It was right after one of your cabins burned down. Oh yeah, that was the hell that blew up my motor running into into camp to see what the hell was going on. Man, that was a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll and, tell and you what. To say, and not to say we, it would have been okay if I had got a 50-pounder that morning, but we never caught a fish either. Man. Uh, Go figure, right? That, that's yeah, the way it always yeah. works. Well, all I can say, Herbie, is, you know, I've told countless, countless people they need to fish with you um, before it's too late. And I, I have the utmost respect for you. Well, I appreciate that very much, man. You know, it goes likewise, you know, I've, I was respected all you guys have made a living doing it too, you know, so it goes both ways. We all learn from each other. The real guys do, you know what I mean? You know, we can bounce ideas off of one another and so forth, but, you know, honestly, I would consider you, you know, one of the pioneers in this whole, this whole game. Let's kind of shift gears and start talking about kind of some of the shield lake fishing. Okay. Where do you want to start? Because there's a lot there. (laughs) <laughs> all right well so let's do this let's talk about weeds versus rocks when you hit a shield lake let's talk about that okay well i mean you know the, the neat thing about ego is basically we could talk about ego and cover every type of shield lake there is because that's what ego is it has you know everything in it from the gin clear lake trout water to the coffee-colored, can't hardly see your bait, dark, dark brown, mud-bottom stuff with you know with weeds that only grow to four to seven, eight feet, and on the clear water side, they may I've seen them as deep as eighteen, you know, but but the weed lines really are more like around you know twelve, fourteen, you know, um, but but everything in between is there also, so it, that's what makes it kind of a you know interesting system. Uh, and, and if you can master Eagle, you can go anywhere on any shield lake and do be successful because it has everything in it. You know what I mean? You got to learn it all to, to stay on top of it. As far as weeds versus rocks, I mean, I've caught a lot of big fish on weeds. I love weeds. Um, but, you know, there's you know definitely a time through most of the season too that weeds can be, you know, can be you know really the go-to pattern, but. I've always loved fishing the edges of the big basins on the rocks and stuff like that. One thing that we did that I did notice made a big change was about 15 years ago, a couple sections of the lake got them, them darn rusty crayfish in them. So it started changing, you know, what the fish were doing and, and stuff like that. Now, even those guys that, that I hear about on Lake La Woods, you know, crying about the loss of weeds and stuff, have faith because. I am seeing the end of that, or a turning point in the cycles, and I'm seeing in the last few years, places weeds were gone for 10 years are coming back. Maybe not the same type of weeds always. Maybe it's the shallower tobacco cabbage up a little, the brown, big brown leaf stuff up shallower. Other places it's that thinner leaf cabbage that still goes out to those weed line depths of, you know, 8 to 14 feet, but they're coming back. So, have faith, you guys that are on lakes that are seeing that same thing. Usually, once once I really the lakes really start getting a thermocline and stuff, the weeds to me are a sanctuary when the fishing is tough. 
when we've come off of a cold front, when we get flat, hot, sunny weather, things like that. That's when I tend to fish the weeds a lot. And also one thing I've found is you get caught up very, very easily fishing that deep edge all the time. And, I, and especially when you get big wind, if you got an inside weed line and you got some sand and stuff up on the inside of that, and you got big wind coming into a, into a big weed line, if you don't get up and try that stuff too, you're missing the boat because everybody thinks deep water, deep water. And that also goes to the types of weed beds that you're fishing. Everybody says, well, big fish, you got to be close to deep water. I'm telling you what, man, I've seen a lot of huge fish and several of the biggest fish long, long way from any deep water in weeds. So you don't necessarily need that because it don't take them very long to get from where, from those weeds back to deep water if that's, in fact, what they even want to do. I have seen several big fish that literally stayed in some sloppy um, and didn't do what we were soon they do and that's moving out to deep water to feed and come back or they didn't do it very often you know because they had everything in those weeds that they needed they had cover they had cool water underneath it they were they were jungles and there was plenty of food in there there's plenty of walleye suckers perch northern and uh, i've seen fish that literally stayed there although most do do a transition in and out okay so but don't think you gotta be close to deep water yes it gives you confidence Yes, it is a good scenario, a better scenario, but don't think it has to be. You know what I'm saying? That's one thing I found about weeds. What What are we talking for time frames of the year when it comes to weeds versus the rocks? Well, I mean, obviously, opener, and if you got weeds coming up, you know, through all the way through the summer. And then again, I really like weeds, like post and the beginning of turnover, too. It seems like when the fish really start scattering on the deeper on the deeper breaks and reefs and stuff, that whatever weeds that you can find, even if they appear to look dead for you, if they got some some denseness to them and, and, and stuff like that, particularly if you get a stretch of Indian summer, there's always seems to be some new growth come in, even in those dead weeds, if you get a stretch of a couple a 10 days or two weeks of Indian summer. And I've seen that period of time become magic when a lot of the, the guides and people were, were still sticking on, on the rocks, you know? And and then once, you know, you get to the post turnover, if there's any green weeds, well, they're always good. But then we really start looking for where the whitefish and the fiscals are moving up on the sand and on the gravel, gravel bars and stuff like that. So um, I've fished weeds all year long it's amazing one thing i've always found amazing is how one day if you if you have action on 12 to 15 fish chasing several hooks catch one or two whatever and they're all on the rocks or 90 percent on the rocks and without seemingly you know sometimes it's very evident that you should make the change and go to weeds but i've seen it even the very next day where the conditions didn't seem to be that much different to warrant that big of a change. And all of a sudden, it's exactly reversed and the fish are all coming out, out of the weeds. It's like, I just don't get it sometimes. But it, what I'm saying is, is keep an open mind for sure, man. That's the most important thing I can tell anybody here in this podcast. You know, there's a lot of great information out there. 
for everybody. Some, some a lot of great people in that. But you got to be your own guy too. You got to be keep your you got to be use your your mind. You got to keep your mind open and 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 don't get caught in a lot of traps. You know, use use all the information you can as guidelines. But man, you know, don't get caught in a rut. Keep your mind wide open because it's it's crazy how things can go. You know. I would totally agree with that, Herbie. You know, I think all of us get kind of stuck in a rut at different points throughout our fishing career. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I kind of want to talk about a little bit more in depth is what kind of weeds are you looking for? I know, I know Eagle Lake definitely has a ton of cabbage up there, but Mm -hmm. are you looking at other weeds as well? Oh, definitely. Um, Definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, obviously, when you find them big, you know, balls of, you know, of what you really call cabbage, the big, big balls of stuff that big, that got big broad leaf and it glows in the dark. You know, when you find bay, you know, a mouth of a bay with that stuff, that's usually on the inside of that is is bluffy type of weed. But the, the big that the balls are usually out near the mouth of it. stuff. So, I mean, that's magic stuff. But you know, there's a lot of places. Too, where we lost cabbage from the crayfish and, and other sections of the lake that kept it are going to experience it in the future because I just got off the phone with the lady from the MNR over a bunch of issues, spiny water fleas and all kinds of stuff. And, and I'm, I'm, we're talking with them about putting put together a great big crib project uh, in um, breaks and areas that the weeds haven't come back and and things like that. So some exciting stuff for Eagle, maybe that's kind of, you know, pioneer for Canadian Shield type of stuff, you know what I'm saying? So um, it's kind of exciting. I'd like to be a part of that before my time is up. But anyway, what I'm finding too is those really hot spells and stretches. Don't ever, ever overlook hot, flat, sunny days. Don't ever overlook that stuff that's blooming on the surface that's in four or five feet of water, that big, leafy, brown, wide. You know, I'm not a scientist. I ain't going to really tell you what kind of weeds they are, right? So you know what I'm talking about when I'm explaining it. It's that low-lying, big, wide-leaf, brown tobacco cabbage. When you get good hot weather, it, it's amazing how that type of weed, and that weed is replacing in some areas some of the cabbage that we lost. And uh, I've had some really, really tremendous topwater type of stuff go on in, in that shallow type of broadleaf uh, brown tobacco cabbage. And then, uh, and I mean, basically, to be honest with you, when you've lost a lot of weed, I'm not, you know, I mean, you, you take what you can get, right? You take what you can find and, and try and learn when they use it the most. The tobacco cabbage, particularly the big broadleaf green stuff, lasts the longest. And in the clear water, it'll actually last till we're done fishing. You know what I'm saying? It may break down a little, but it's, it'll still be very, very, very green. Now, the thinner leaf stuff, which tends to grow, you know, it seems to grow more on the sandy stuff and windswept areas, usually gets tore up as you start approaching turnovers. Usually a lot of it's gone, you know. But there'll still be some patches, and, and where the thickest patches were in the summer is what you need to icon because that's what'll be left and will hold the few fish that still use those those big sand flats you know so that was an important thing that i found and, and like i said I, i'll use any type of weed 
and, and try and determine a pattern through the course of the summer of when fish are using it and when they aren't, and then just go from there. You know, I, I haven't done, I don't do a lot of kind of crazy record keeping and stuff. It's kind of fun to me to just keep it in my head and figure it out and all that kind of stuff. Kind of what makes the challenge fun to me. So, um, you know, I do a lot of bouncing around, doing a lot of moving around and trying to make it happen. So Herbie, I was going to kind of shift away from weeds for a second. And in the beginning, you talked about you and your guide team kind of trying to stay ahead of the pack as far as like you're showing all your guests all, you know, where to fish and giving them everything, you know, but you guys always had to try to stay like one step ahead of them in a sense. Do you want oh, to kind perfect. of talk about the process, like how how you sure, went about sure, staying sure, one sure, step ahead? Sure. sure. Now, even by the time I got there, you know, Eagle Lake. Huh, I mean, it twice held the world record of fish over sixty pounds. So there were some bad dudes that that were fishing eagle. Not all with great success, because back in the day, you know, I mean, they were catching fish. Don't get me wrong, but the population was not what it is now. There were fewer fish, but percentage-wise, a lot of big ones. When I first got there, it was, you hardly ever saw a fish under 44 inches, you know, but, you know, you had to work for them. More than half of the fish you've seen seem to be 50 inches or better. Now, that's changed in the last 28, 30 years in the fact that the big fish are still there. There's plenty of big fish, if not even, even more. It's just that there's many, many, many more fish per acre of all size classes, which makes fishing for people. Eagle was always tough for somebody that wasn't an experienced fisher, fisherman and was willing to fight it out and, and for a goal of, a, of the biggest fish of their life. That's changed. That's changed. That goal is still 100% can be there for you. However, now it's very common to catch three, four, five fish in a day and have and have action on fish 12 to 20 fish in a day you know so it's getting to be kind of uh, a little bit more by like lakewood woods although i think still the top you know overall size is still the top end is still there on eagle i think in a lot of a lot of other lakes and i think that had to do i think that change in the population had to do with not so much catch and release because anybody that knows eagle knows those the big fish protect themselves. I believe they're the highest form of life and the quickest fish to condition to new bait techniques and patterns and lures of any place I've ever fished. But you know, it's just that that uh, you know, it's just so much different um, than any other place. And I think what it had to do with is, is that there's not near as many pipes in the system as there was 30 years ago, and by by far. So I think that, you know, because it's all natural, there's no stocking. Everything's done according to God and nature. So I believe that, that, the, that the reduction in the, in the number of pipes in the lake over the last 30 years has been the, one of the sole major causes of the increase in the bulging, floating musky population on, on Eagle Lake. You know, I start rolling, I'm rambling, man. you got to keep me on a topic. What were we talking about there? <laughs> well, I mean, you gave us a good background on Eagle Lake, which is always helpful. But also, uh, the I guess the question I had more was, how did you guys try to stay ahead of the pack? Oh, there you go. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Okay, what I was getting at is a lot of great fishermen is where I got got off on the tangent have been on Eagle. The Larry Ramsells, the John, you know, all the guys, uh, Pearsons, all them guys gave Eagle a shot because of its reputation. You know what I'm saying? A lot of great fishermen were on that lake. So that being said, there were many great spots that were very well known, and you could call them community spots, have you, but you had to fish them because they were that good that fish always were stopping and using them, okay? So what I tried to do, and it's still in my guides, is that every single day we would try and fish at least one new spot, okay? Now, many of them did not pan out. Seemingly look as good as the best spot that you caught so many big fish on, but yet very rarely would a fish ever use it. And then other spots are now what are, because you get caught on them and you give them to you guide on them and you give, you know, give them to guests and, and, you know, and just, we're all snipers and vultures, you know, nobody, if you're not, if you're not, you're not a smart fisherman, right? So, you know, a lot of these spots that we've been finding are now common name spots on the lake. But many of these spots that we are now using that are not the original community spots, it takes time a lot of times. And, and what most people do wrong when they go to look for new spots is they go when their good spots aren't happening, okay? Because so then they go searching for something that's going to be magic for them. Well, that ain't going to happen. Very seldom. You need to pull yourself off of your good stuff, and you need to search out those new spots when the fish are moving, not when not under tough conditions, or they won't tell you what's going on. Second of all, many of these secondary spots are secondary spots that end up becoming primary spots for a reason, and that is because they're not community spots all season long or most of the season. They have smaller windows. So you have to stick with a spot that looks good for maybe two seasons or, or more and fish it under different winds, different times of the season, different times of the day. You know, the, the, the many different things that, that, that change during the course of a day, a week, a season, you know, in, in musky fishing. And then usually what happens is, is you find that it's a particular scenario or combination of scenarios or time of the year when these secondary spots become gold. And it has all to do with how the fish are revolving and moving about the lake in their nomadic wandering following bait fish. And it's amazing how some great, great spots, I've had spots where I've caught as many as six, seven fish over 50 inches on in a season. Small spots relatively too. And then the next season, you struggle to even hardly see a fish and, and catch one on it. And it's not because of pressure. It's because it's a different year. The weather conditions are different than the year before. And the bait fish are in different areas of the lake because of it. And the fish just simply aren't going by those structures and stopping there as often as they were when the scenarios were better for them to do that. You know, I've seen that happen a lot, a lot, spots doing that to you, you know. So, Herbie, I heard you talk a lot a bit about, you know, spots changing based off of bait fish migrations. Is bait fish one of the biggest keys to finding success on 
let's just say not even Eagle Lake. I mean, you talked earlier about your success in Northern Wisconsin, just to try to relate it to more, more listeners is bait fish. Like, is that your key or are you, what, what, like kind of what's like the, well, you know, if you really, if you really know your system or your lakes that you're fishing and, and you know how to read your electronics and stuff, you know, bait fish are definitely always the key. Although I'm going to tell you, particularly trolling, some of my biggest fish been caught in the vicinity of bait, but not, not in them, you know? So, I mean, it, it's definitely a positive thing, and it's definitely something that gives you confidence if, if you're in and around a lot of bait fish. But a lot of times, the biggest fish, I think, are caught when they're nomadically traveling in between feeding stations. And yours is the only bait that comes across them or it's a different bait that sticks out versus the bait that they really uh, that they're really on the move to get to you know or or they're actually hanging out near bait fish just kind of gelling until they decide to go and pick off one of the sheep and here comes your bait and it wakes them up and you catch them but these weren't in the bait or uh, or under the bait as you see depictions of, of so many of uh, so many, you know, pictures and drawings and what have you of, of where you should be putting your baits and, and catch and for catching fish. So, you know, one thing, one thing that I'll tell you that has worked for me and it works particularly in, on Eagle and, and other seal lakes is what, when a pattern that I feel should be working and has been working, isn't that big? I don't make minor changes. I find that doing almost the exact opposite rather than making a minor change like a simple lure color or something like that. Very seldom will that make huge, huge differences that have for me. By making major changes in either like going from weeds to rocks or to open water or from shallow to deep or from clear to dark, you know, things like that, exact opposites have been more magic for me and what taught me that was back in northern Wisconsin, where in a 30-mile, 50-mile circle of, of where I lived in Boulder Junction were 1,500 musky lakes, and they were all different. And sometimes we maybe fished two or three different lakes in a day that were totally different in ecosystem styles and water colors, and then all of a sudden here's one that's hotter than hell. I learned that's kind of exaggerated when you get to a big shield lake like Lake of the Woods or, or Eagle Lake or, or Lac Sewell or something like that. But uh, that's something that I feel pretty strongly about. And I, like I said, when things aren't working, I say, what the heck? I usually make major, major changes. It's almost like he listens to the podcast because typically, Herbie, that's one of the questions I ask guys, how long you ride out a pattern before you decide that you need to make a change? And so that was awesome. I mean, for guys that yeah. are looking for uh, for some tips for this year, for this season, you know, yeah. listen, listen to what he said there. Make major changes, you know, not just subtle changes. So that that was yeah. a great. You can always you can always go back to what was working, you know, uh, later on in the day or the next day. But if it's not happening, there usually something is somewhere. Maybe not, maybe not, you know, earth shattering, but there's there's something. You know, and and do and in doing that, I think it sharpens you up. I think you become more predatory. I think I think the challenge gets there again, 
And whenever you're like that, you are way more um, apt to do something right rather than screw up because you're being complacent, absent-minded, just going through the motions. I think that maybe has even a lot to do with it, you know? It's hard to say. All I know is it works for me a lot. So then we kind of jumped on bait fish there. So, you know, one thing we talk about, I'll hit it before Brad does this. I'm sure he's thinking it. With all the technology that you've seen and all the different advancements that you've seen, how much do you you use side imaging in your day-to-day fishing? Is it something you use at all? Because it's something that we talk about on the podcast frequently. And I'm just curious, is that something that you use to help help you on a day-to-day basis on the water? Or are you so old school that you just pass over the newest technology? No, I got four 10-inch hummingbirds on my boat right now. I'm still learning how to use it. I think the side imaging is is miraculous, although I haven't seen where it's really done a lot for me yet because I'm still learning how to really understand it and use it. You know, it's, I've just really learned how to start reading fish that are inside on the edges of the weeds and stuff. You know, I, I, I was always looking for that perfect fish, you know, that you see on all these photographs that people take of their graphs. And then, you know, and then, um, you know, and... And I am fishing more and more sand all the time, and there you get good readings. But, you know, a lot of our stuff is sealed rocks and with with fairly steep breaks and big boulders up on top. And I don't know. I have a hard time deciphering what's going on on that kind of structure. And and Luke, uh, Luke Ronstadt, and everybody knows him, you know, I talked to him about it because he's, him and some of them boys on Vermillion become very, you know, really, really good on that side image and stuff. He says it's because you can't see them because they're hiding behind the rocks on you. So, and maybe that's why I can't. But I'm using it more and more. I use it particularly off, I, I use it more for finding inside turns and corners than I do fish other than behind me. I use it a lot from behind me on days when I think fish might be behind me and there always is some particularly later on in the season, things like that. Uh, I use it a lot when I'm trolling. But as far as casting uh, um, on Eagle, uh, you know, I, I'm beginning to use it more and more. I love my, uh, you know, my regular sonar and my down imaging, and I play with watching the differences between the two and stuff. But to be honest with you, and I'll be honest with you, the way I fish and the way I know my water, I could have a, an ice fishing colored locator in my boat probably do just as good but you know it's still nice to play around and wonder and uh use all that technology and someday i'll get to be as good as brad and some of these other guys with that side image and stuff but no it, it's definitely a tool that people should be looking at and, and who knows where it's going to go from here you know but like i say if you know your water and spend as much time on your water as i do like I said, I, I think I can do probably just as good with a flasher, but uh, I'm not really old school. I, I embrace I embrace the new technology. I'm, I'm kind of joking what I just said there, but it, there's a little bit of truth to it. I think one of the things, Herbie, that we all do, and especially us that are a little bit older, you know, we lean back on the electronics that we grew up with. And I think... Mm-hmm that's kind of a, a factor that I think a lot of people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, water temp and, and speed, you know, it's so 
really, really critical to me. You know what I mean? And, and that's what this new, you know, electronics, so accurate and so quick and, and, and everything. And, you know, I mean, it's really, that's what, you know, if you watch that kind of stuff, you know, a lot, you know, that's where you start deciphering things that other people don't. Um, the small things that make a big difference over the course of the season or that you recognize for next season or later on that season, you know, little things like that, that I think uh, make a big difference, you know, more so than than worrying about the latest equipment and, and, and baits, you know. I mean, it's just the way it is, you know. I would totally agree with that. You know, we could talk about electronics forever, but ultimately, you know, we beat up the weed side of things. Let's talk about the rocks. Let's talk about when you decide to go to rocks. I fish rocks right from opening day. I'll fish rocks right from opening day, right till our ice freezes up. I love fishing rocks. I believe my baits are more visible to, to fish for longer distances. I believe I can I can cover ground faster and work my baits quicker and have more, work faster with more space in between my casts generally, unless it's a really really tough type of day. Um, I love I love and I wit it's just, it's it's where these rocks are. Shallow, shallow, shallow rocks, a rock bar, shallow rocks, or rocky points, or boulders near near mouths of bays and, and island clusters near spawning areas can be absolute magnets, you know, in early season when everybody's fishing the edge of the reeds and the weeds, and obviously there's fish there. But usually, I'm telling you, man, some of my biggest fish that I've caught early in the season have come off of rocks, not weeds. And I'll fish them all year long. I mean, I, I generally start, I generally go through my day alternating stuff until I find one of them, you know, when you have run into one of them days where, man, it's, it's just so overwhelming that the fish are really moving in the weeds better, but yet you still got to hit a good, good series of rocks every once in a while too. But then, you know, and then you got days where, you know, they're all, the fish are just flying off the rocks and you can't find nothing but a few small fish in the weeds. And so then, you know, you kind of stick towards the rocks, but but generally speaking, I love nothing better than once I get past uh, oh about the second, third, fourth week of the season, and the wallies have started. And say the mayfly hatch is over; it's gotten over. I love from that time on going right down the middle of the basin, fishing everything from shallow rocks and points to stuff that's down twenty, eighteen to twenty-five feet. You know, and everything in between. I love fishing the deeper rocks. I love fishing the stuff people are walleye fishing. I just think that that's the stuff that doesn't, people don't have a lot of confidence sticking on, and it's not really easy for a lot of people to fish. Most people that go to Shield Lakes are target fishing. You know, it's all target fishing, stuff they can visually see. Rock that has, you know, sticks out of the water while they ring around it. You know, there's a point that obviously sticks out, so they fish it. Uh, you know, there's a big weed bed, and they, they fish the tops and stuff. That's that's the kind of stuff that Canada's famous for, you know, or the backs and ends of bays and stuff like that. You know, I mean, that's that's what Canadian fishing is all about to a lot of people. But you start getting a lake that, you know, everybody's fishing all that stuff on you. There's a lot of stuff out there, and you know, and that that people are missing, and and that that's where it's, that I have my fun. That's where my juices get flowing. That's just finding and, and, and playing with stuff like that. Because it just seems like 
you know, the more out in the open, and, and particularly the deeper the structure uh, that I'm fishing, the more the unknown of what could happen is there in the back of your mind, you know, because I know it swims in that lake. And I just think those super fish do things that aren't always normal. You know what I mean? And that's what I've been searching for, particularly in the last 10, 15 years once, you know, things have, you know, just got, you know, kind of crowded on me a little bit, you know, and that's why I really enjoy fishing is that kind of stuff. I love rocks. I love rocks. And, uh, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying a lot of big fish don't, don't and can come out of weeds. I just love fishing rocks, you know? I hear you completely. One of the things that I have to ask, Kirby, you know, you are continually experimenting. You're trying different things. Let's talk about your typical day on the water. Uh, time of year? Well, I, I mean, just basically, I think it'd be a good rundown if, okay, say, okay, we're, say okay, we're there in mid, mid-July. It depends, a lot, it depends a lot on who I'm fishing with. It depends on who my guests of the day are. And it's sad to say, but after all these years, you know, a lot of my really, really, I mean, I live and every guy lives for those days. The guy stepped in the boat that you fished with many times and caught big fish with you. And they got complete confidence in you. And they'll just tell you, do whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? Let's go try some new stuff or whatever. You know, those kind, those kind of clients and days are just special, you know. But to be honest with you, a lot of my guys, after as many years that, that I've been in it and had the you know, pleasure of spending time in the boat with guys like that, a lot of them have gotten older. A lot of them also have gotten so darn good that they still want to fish one day with me, but they got it. They're basically as good a fisherman as I ever thought of being, you know. But I just have to be on my water every single day. That's what gives me the edge, right? But yet, that being said, I, because of the format of Andy Myers Lodge and what we've always had with our seminars and guest fishing instructors and, and, and stuff like that, is I'll be honest with you, I get as many new beginners or very infrequent compared to those other types of people, fishermen, and some days I have to start out out in the middle of the bay, making sure that they can cast well, making sure they can do good boat side maneuvers before I will even go near a big fish. Because all it does is cause quiet times in the boat and disappointment. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it depends on who I got in the boat, how I start out. And I can't tell you, probably out of seven days a week, I'll probably three or four of those days, I can tell just by talking with the guys. I can tell by their equipment. I can tell by what their lures look like. I can tell by how they're speaking that they, they need some instruction. And that's, you know, it's not just about catching people fish when you're a guy. Real good guys teach people how to make, how to make them, how to make you look good. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and that's, I get as much excitement now, to be honest with you catching people, their first musky, a woman or a kid or something. Um, as, as I do, taking somebody out that's, you know, a good fisherman and we've caught so many together that you just know it's going to happen anyway. You know what I mean? It's just, some people, it's just going to happen. They're positive, they fish hard, they don't make mistakes when the time comes. And these other people, but they all have to start someplace, right? So these other people that come up, you got to start them someplace too. 
and you can't just have all great fishermen in your boat that make you look good, you know. And and uh, so that's how I start today is determining what I got, you know, what I got in, on my hands, you know what I mean. And then I go from there and I try to judge, you know, what what they can handle. The last thing I want is to take somebody to a really big fish that I know has been using a, a spot or an area or it's a spot that has been consistently big fish has been coming on. And these people have never experienced that because invariably you can call it. You know what's going to happen, Brad. You've been there yourself. You know what's going to happen. The first big fish that comes in, they're going to, it's going to shock them. There's going to be musky fever, like buck fever. And only left that fish is a suicide fish because it end up, you know, converting into a, a catch. And, and that's not the way to start people out. You know what I mean? So I get, I try to fish some, that's when I fish a lot of weeds right away in the morning. And, you know, like with, with, you know, eight blades or, or middle baits or, or jerk baits or top water, particularly top water and eight are great for new fishermen. And you get them over some weeds and, and you get some mid range fish moving and, and catch them up, you know, a 40 to 45, 40. Maybe they get lucky and a great big fish just gobbles the bait and everything goes right and you get them. And then they're on their way, you know, and then graduate, you know, into what I know big fish have really been using. And that's how I kind of work through the day. I watch the weather. The neat thing about Eagle is, is that within 20 minutes, I can be in anything from gin clear to green water and without putting my boat on the trailer. So I'm watching the weather. I'm watching the moon phases, obviously, and, and when to beware. And I'm watching how my people are progressing through the day. Because to be honest with you, you only very seldom get more than one shot at a big fish you've been working. And it's got to count. Or it's usually start overtime. You know what I'm saying? I, I know exactly what you're saying, Herbie. One of the neatest things about you, and I, I've said it a couple times already in this podcast, if you haven't been in a boat with you, you need to. You need to get out in the boat with Herbie. Some of your ideal ideas and what you actually try to accomplish every day in the boat is so incredible, Herbie. And I... I I love those times that I've been in the boat with you. Well, I, it goes it goes both ways, buddy. You know, um, Eagle Lake is a special, special body of water, but it, it's way beyond that, you know. And what I'm talking about is your experience in, in northern Wisconsin that you took up to Eagle Lake. You know, the incredible fishery that you have at your hands right now, it, it's truly remarkable. It really is. And, you know, talking about what I, we were talking about, or what I was talking about before, the 28 years of what I've given to people, it just, I, I, sometimes I lay in bed and wonder if I'd never done that. If I just, you know, kept everything to myself like most, most real successful guides do and everything, just what would have happened? You know, what would I have accomplished? What would I have caught? And then I think to myself, it would have been great, but nah, it wouldn't have been as much fun, you know? So, I, you know, I, I, I really enjoy what I've done for people. Met, you know, business is so great for meeting so many great people. And, and you, when you make somebody's life and trip and dreams, you know, um, it's just, it's something special. And I've seen some anglers turn from people that I've had to teach out in the bay to some of the best anglers that I would have in my boat at any single day, at any single time, 
And that is is really something special to me. And I still manage to get my share. You know, I still manage to get my share. <laughs> I, there's no doubt. But, uh, you know, the neat thing about you, Herbie, and I think people, once they're in your boat, they, they realize it really quickly. You know, I, I'll never forget. Yeah, I, I had the lodge pack you lunches. So here we are, we're eating our lunch. And what do you do? You take a, like a five, seven minute nap, 15 minutes max. And you're like back up and you're casting again. You're a machine. And <laughs> being a machine like that, I'll tell you what, I mean, that definitely puts the, uh, the odds in your favor, if you will. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, like I said, that, that all started, you know, it's all passion. Eh? It's all the desire. And the passion that that brings that kind of stuff out in you, you know, and you can tell the people who got it too. And some people, you know, you just hope you can get them a fish, and that's where they're at, you know. And then, you know, and then there's other guys that you can see really got it, and that man, you got an animal in the makings on your hands, and and you know, it's just going to go further and further with them. And so, you know, it, it, there's so many different facets of being a a successful guide and, and musky fisherman these days. And, and, uh, I guess that's what makes it the sport it is, you know? Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, it's remarkable. And I think all guides have that type of feeling or they have those type of clients that you, that you're talking about, but you know, as a good guide, you end up elevating those, those clients too. So you bring them to a different level when you have the energy that you have, Herbie. So that, that's a big point too. Yeah, and, I'm, and you know, for a while there, when, like I said, when that resort just kept turning, turned into a monster and kept growing and I read it. And uh, it, was, it got to one point where I didn't, I thought I was losing that. And it was just because of burnout. I mean, I was, I was working minimum you know, 18 hours a day minimum. I mean, between guiding and, and running the resort and maybe even going out in the evening too, you know, after guiding all day and then take care of all the problems when I get back in and everybody's got questions and answers and checking out and all this and that. And that's why when I hit about 60 and then, you know, in my first bout of cancer there, I got through it real pretty quick and easy. It woke me up a lot and I just decided, man, I want to die with a smile on my face. You know what I'm saying? And that's, uh, and that's kind of where I'm at now. The, the, the pitch and the fever is, is back in me. And, uh, you know, a lot of them young guys still got to, on the staff, still got to work real, real hard to keep up with this cat, you know. And I'm, and I'm going to try and be that way to the day, the day I can't get in my boat. Well, I'll, I'll just say this, Herbie. Andy Myers Lodge has been an incredible place. You know, I've been to a ton of different lodges and, and places throughout Canada, throughout Minnesota, what have you. But, you know, the neat thing about that place, plain and simple, bottom line is they want you to catch fish. And that's you included. And not only you, but several others that work out of that lodge. And, and that's a big factor. I mean, I've been to so many different camps. And when you come to that camp, when we come to Andy Myers. Plain and simple, they are trying to achieve that everybody gets their goal. Everybody catches fish. And that's a well, that's a huge you, compliment. And, and you feel you can feel a different kind of buzz, 
You know what I'm saying? You can you almost feel like a buzz, you know, when the guides come up at the end of the day and the guests all get together and the, sh- the stuff starts flying about the course of the day what happened. And, and you, ju- you know, you just see people, you just see people start chugging their beers twice as fast and puffing their cigarettes quicker. And you can just see them get worked up, you know, and it's just about the buzz. You know what I mean? There's, there's definitely excitement there. You know what I mean? And I think that's what you need in fishing, you know, and, and a great vacation and, and becoming a better angler. You need to have fire in your belly or I don't think you're going to get what, uh, you know, what it takes to become a great angler. You need that fire in your belly. I, I can't disagree at all. And, you know, that's what that camp provides. That's for sure. You know, that's the uniqueness to the whole deal. Every day, you're, you're conversing about it. You're talking. You want people to catch fish. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. huge. I really do. Mm-hmm. So ha- hats off to you, Herbie. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right. So, Herbie, one thing we haven't really touched on in the podcast that much, we had a, maybe like way back in the beginning, uh, I think it might have been John Holmgren. He was talking about like keeping a record in a log. With all the experience that you have and all the 28 years of you know musky catches that you have, how do you keep all the information? Is it, I mean, do you, do you keep a record log of every single season you can go back on or you just got it all hanging out in your head? You know, I, I I've never, I, I, I can remember every single 50 inch fish I've ever put in the boat. Okay. Over 30 years. I can remember exactly what the conditions were. I can exact, I can remember the bait it was caught on, things like that. Uh, why we caught it, stuff like that. You know, I started logs and stuff about 20 years ago but to be quite honest i had very little time to do that and and you know part of it and part of what i enjoy so much is that snap instinctive decision not analytical and and i realize that's the way it's going now and, and hats off to those guys that that can keep all those records and 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 be so analytical that they that they think that they can turn it into catches at any snap of a finger. But, you know, I don't know if that always works, to be honest with you. You know, as much as people would like to believe, I think it helps a lot. Don't get me wrong. But to be honest with you, like I said, I didn't have a lot of time both running the resorts and and uh, guiding every day and everything to really sit down and not have a clouded mind to be able to write a lot of that stuff down. So, in answer to that, most of the stuff is is instinctive and in the back of my mind uh, and burned into my whatever in my in my brain. It you know it just burned into the valleys and, and furrows and mountains of my brain and uh, and, and it's just extinct. And when you're on the game, when you're on the game, you don't have to look at your book, man. When you're on your game and you're and things are happening and you feel good and 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 you're on your game, you don't need to look at records. Stuff just instinctively happens if you've been on the water a lot. And and there's nothing cooler than to make that an instinctive of something comes to your mind and you make an instinctive decision that turns the day around with a big fish. To me, that's what it's all about, you know? And, you know, I should have probably, I'm not telling people don't keep records. You know, if you're a learning and beginning angler, it's probably the best one of the best things you can do. I definitely really watch the moon phases, not so much when I'm on a roll. 
unless I have a very exceptional fish. Because to be honest, except when I'm experimenting and looking for some new stuff, most of the stuff that I'm fishing could hold a giant fish at any time. You know what I'm saying? So I don't, I don't really look watch the stuff quite as much when I'm really on a roll, but I watch it fanatically when the fishing conditions are tough and we've got going through a tough spell because that's when those, especially moon overhead, moon underfoot stuff really, really make a huge, huge difference. It could very well be your only chance of the day, you know? So I really watch that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and at the end of the day, I try and record that stuff now because, you know, I just want to see over a course of a time, you know, if, if it's as, if it's just as good as I really think it is, and it, and it usually is, you know what I'm saying? But like I said, I, I really don't, uh, in the past, I didn't have time to do a lot of record keeping, and I'm not exactly a rocket scientist, but I don't forget that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> how, about you, how about you, Brad? Do you do any of that? Because I know I used to way back in the day, and when I say way back in the day, it's not like I've been fishing that long, but I mean, I've been fishing long enough. I used to keep good records all the time, and now I don't do that much at all. Is that something that you do at all? I did. Um, there was a time in my boat, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, I ran a Polaroid camera so I could actually write right on the bottom of that, that picture. And, you know, it's funny. I've got piles of those pictures laying around and what have you, but honestly, I, I haven't gone back to them. I really haven't. And unfortunately I think like Herbie said, I mean, there's things that you could go back to when you're struggling and you, you could have something to lean on. And I have some clients of mine that actually have kept really, really good records. And I, I'll be honest, I, I reach out to some of those clients when, when things are really going bad. And they can put you back in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But like I said, I just never had time. And when I did do it, it was like what you said. It was in my earlier years, and I and I don't know. As I guess, as I became more confident in what I was doing, and and had an idea what I was doing, and I like I said, I just think it's the challenge of it is what really gets puts the puts the fire in my belly, and that's just kind of where I'm at. I'm not saying it's the right way to be, but it works for me. Well, I'll, I'll just say this, Herbie. You know, you, you kind of you allude, alluded to it anyway. When you're in that zone. And when things are just like kind of clicking, everything's like in slow motion and you can remember, you, you remember, Hey, I remember this time it happened to me last year. We, we actually did a YouTube video on it. It's a hundred inches of fish and two casts or whatever on YouTube right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. The progressed and it was just like, we're seeing fish, they're following, they're doing this, they're doing that. You know what? We got to fish after dark. Boom. And guess what? We got two fish back-to-back cast equal 100 inches of fish. You know, it's those little things. When things click and you can remember what it was that got you there, it's Mm -hmm. so special. And believe me, you're not going to keep your notes in the boat. So you have to kind of have that memory. I'm not saying fish memories because when you start fishing memories, you kind of get lost. But when things are really clicking, everything kind of goes in an orderly fashion. It's slow motion. Boom, boom, boom. They just all click. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, and it's kind of like, it's just such a cool feeling when your instinct kicks in and, and you just have so total confidence that no matter what you're doing, you go with it. And that is the most powerful feeling, I think, that I, I feel in my life. You know what I'm saying? Other than, you know, some love and kids and stuff like that. But uh, it's pretty special to me. I totally agree with you, Herbie. I mean, there's a lot of special things in life, but for some reason, these muskies just kind of bring it to the top, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. This was this has been great, man. I, I have the utmost respect for you. I love talking to you, you know, and we talk quite often, Herbie, and I, I really appreciate yeah. that. And you've helped us with our tackle company and so on and so forth. You know, one of the things that you bring so much to the table, and I think a lot of you. So I really appreciate you coming on tonight. And I, I think the listeners are going to elevate some of their game just based off of what you said. Well, super. I hope so. That's the whole name of this game, right? That's for sure. But before we sign off with Herbie, so Steve, this is the point in the in the show where looking for one tip for guys to put more fish in the boat for this season. If you got one thing you can offer them, what is it? Well, I'm going to tell you, every single fish is special. However, you know, sometimes when the fish are really biting and really moving good, things are taken for granted. But even when things are going really great, but even more so, when you happen to do something, make a decision, and you catch a good fish, or any, and, and the size doesn't matter. It's relative to how tough the conditions that you're going through. Sometimes a 40-inch fish is way more of, of uh, an accomplishment than a 55-inch fish, depending upon what you're going through. So you can't just look at sizes. It's, it's what you've accomplished under what conditions and what you're going through. So no matter what, and particularly under the toughest days, every single fish you catch, don't take for granted. Sit down and think about it. You know, how, why, and where did this happen? And that usually will get you off into the right direction. Sit, lay awake at night. Most, I'm going to tell you one thing. I've probably learned way more from my very toughest days and toughest stretches because of laying awake at night and trying to figure out where I went wrong or if I didn't go wrong and, I, and it's just the way it was or what I could have done different than when I've been on a roll and put big fish in the boat for 15 or 18 or 20 days straight. You know, things just happen then, and it's just things are on a roll. But it's when you don't take bad days and just shuffle them aside and say, well, tomorrow's another day. Try and figure out why it was a tough day and, and take it seriously. And usually you will ha come way out ahead at the end of the game, at the end of the day, figuring out your tough days instead of just your good days. I would agree with that. And one of the things that I would say, Herbie, is having that uh, connection with some other people that have been out there doing the same thing. And oh, yeah. Yeah. If, if you have that network of guys that you're working with and you can trust them, that's huge. And I know that you have oh, yeah. that with Andy Myers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's the one thing. Uh, there, it's, you know, it's all about sharing. You know, stay out of the other guy's face, but, you know, you should be able to take what works for him and develop your own pattern. The lake's got so many different similar structures and the sharing of information and the patterns is, is absolutely huge. You are totally 
correct, sir. That's good stuff. So, Steve, we want to thank you for coming out tonight, taking time out of your schedule. I'm glad that we finally made it happen. I also, you know, we say this every week because we try to keep these podcasts to like an hour, hour and 20 minutes. And just based on sometimes it's on my schedule and Brad's schedule alone and the guest schedule, we don't want to take up too much time. And we, so we say we really need to get you back on. But in your case, as a, as with a lot of our other guests, too, we actually do need to make this happen because like Brad had just said, you know, the gloves are just starting to come off. There's so many more stories and layers and everything that we can get into with you. So hopefully we can make this happen again soon. So I just want to oh, thank you. I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm vibrating and shaking right now. This, <laughs> I love talking with guys like you and I love helping people. And like I said, we just kind of gone through some preliminary stuff. We can, we can get down to some real serious brass tacks, you know, here. Um, now that we got this kind of stuff out of the way, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. The next one, we don't have to spend so much time on the background end of it. We can just jump right into the meat and potatoes, which is what guys really right. want to know. But we always like to give a background story for guys that, you know, maybe they're not familiar with who our guests are. Like sometimes we have, you know, guests that lay a little bit lower. Other times we are a little bit more high profile. So we just want to make sure that everybody knows kind of the background story and what we're dealing with. So next time we can right skip right through that, get into the, you know, like I said, the meat and potatoes. But for for this episode... Like I said, we just want to thank you for coming out. If somebody's looking to get in touch with you to book a trip, how do they go about doing that? All they got to do is uh, go online, just Google Andy Myers Lodge. There's a toll-free number, 888-727-5865. And actually, from uh, about the uh, end of November through the end of this month, that actually rings on my personal phone here in Wisconsin. And Julian can be reached at uh, 807 807- Two two zero six three three zero info at Andy Myers Lodge. Great website. Got a great Facebook page. We're easy to find. We're easy to get a hold of. Got plenty of of stories and and references. Uh, great people you can talk to if you want to. You know, and, and me and myself. That eight hundred number rings on my phone all winter long. I'm sitting here, um, you know, taking phone calls and taking reservations, but. I have a lot of experience in Wisconsin. I have a lot of experience in Canada. Um, and, and I have pipelines to every place else in the country. These guys, don't be afraid. You never bother me. This is what I do. This is what I love to do. Nobody's ever bothered me when they call me and want help or information on anything that seems may seem stupid to them even. Like what equipment to buy, what lures to buy. You know, it goes on and on and on. That stuff does not bother me, okay? And no time is a bad time. So one thing I can tell you, that's one thing that I do for Andy Myers Lodge in my capacity now, is I'm there for anybody that wants to talk fishing, and I embrace it. Well, I can clearly say you did that tonight. So once again, like I said, we just want to thank you for coming out. Hopefully we can catch up soon, and I hope you have a great season. Thanks again, Steve. It's, it's, it's great. But Brad, I want to know uh, what happened to Carrie. I'm still here. Just taking it all in. <laughs> I, I, I expected some sharp stuff to come off of that noggin of yours. Heck, you're the designer in most of that stuff there. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll tell you this, Herbie. She definitely, we need to figure out a time when Carrie and I can come up and fish with you again. So oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. We'll, we'll figure even, that out. Even, even on my way back home, stopping by and seeing you guys and fishing your waters too. It's all good. That would be perfect. 
I like well, I like that. We get to begin the podcast giving Carrie a hard time and the podcast with giving Carrie a hard time. Seems like a success. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Herbie, for coming on. We truly appreciate it. Not a problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks for allowing us to uh, put a few plugs in there for Andy Myers Lodge, too, and so on and so forth. So it's all good. Now, it's a great place to go, that's for sure. And uh, that's no problem at all. We definitely need to do this one more time again sometime. So, sounds good. Some evening bite, you know, from like, you know, 9 to 8.30 to 10 o'clock or something, right? I mean, there's a very, very good chance something could happen right on the podcast, you know? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks a lot, both of you. Yep, thank you. Uh, I hope I hope I did okay for you. I'm not a lot rocket scientist.